If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis 35. I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction and read the verses in chapter 35 that I think are kind of core here. It'll be in about verse, verses 9 and following. But before we get there, let me give you a, a kind of a running start. So track with me going back to the beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve's sin and God's response to Eve to Adam and to the serpent is to give a series of kind of consequences. And in the middle of those consequences, we have this, this little nutshell containing a hope in verse 15. Sometimes it's called the Proto-Evangelium. That is the, kind of the first prototype, the gospel. And, and here's that, that, that promise is Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's offspring. Actually, w- the way it said is, he, that is the offspring of, of the serpent, will crush the heel of the offspring of Eve, and Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent's offspring. That's Genesis 3.15. And as you're reading Genesis with your eyes open, you start to see that emphasis of this righteous offspring, and, and interposed there, you see kind of this, this group of wicked people reoccurring throughout the storyline of Genesis. And this morning, we're going to pick up Abraham is the character we looked at last week. And I think Abraham shows us how his response to God's promises drove his life. Hebrews said he left the place that he had lived in and went to a country promised him. And he did that by faith. It was by faith he offered up Isaac. And so, so Abraham in the New Testament is this kind of example of faith in God's promises. And going back to Genesis 3.15 and then following the restatement of promises and the clarification and the amplification of promises, you can trace in Genesis the grace promised to God's people. So Abraham passes away somewhere around chapters 24 and 25. We see Abraham's kind of twilighting and, and as his life sunsets, we see Isaac come up. That's his son. And the promises are transferred to Isaac. We're not going to spend a lot of time on Isaac. Isaac marries at about 40 years old. So some of you that are single and 28, you feel like the world is passing you by. Just chill out. It's coming. Just trust the Lord. I mean, he didn't even get a date, right? Abraham sends a servant out to get a wife for him. So like servant shows up. I mean, that's a rough opening, right? Hey, here she is, Isaac. That's his wife. So he marries this lady that he just meets, and she's barren. And he prays, and God gives her twins, Esau and Jacob. And and while she's expecting, the Lord tells her the younger one is going to be the child of promise. He's going to be the one that that takes these promises and carries them forward. And, And Jacob doesn't pass away till the end of Genesis. He's really the character that we follow through for the rest of Genesis. And then probably about 10 chapters from the end, Joseph's storyline is helping carry Jacob's storyline forward. And so at the end of the end of Genesis, we have Jacob passing away and, and kind of the situation settled in such a way that when Exodus starts, and remember, this is a series on Exodus. My wife's like, we're Genesis again? So... We're getting there. So this will hopefully be our last sermon in in Genesis, and then next week we'll be starting Exodus 1. Hopefully then context fills you in. Okay, so we're going to really cover the life of Jacob today and Joseph a little bit. Jacob is this really fascinating character in so many ways because he's not exactly like your super righteous, holy Christian type of guy. He's a liar, he's a cheat, and he struggles with faith. Now, some of us find a lot more in common with that type of guy than Abraham, who just seems like this virtuous, faith-filled, resolute patriarch. Jacob, it's like, he's a little more us. So Jacob, he, he in some ways, swindles his, his birthright, that is that right of blessing coming down. He swindles it away from his older brother Esau. I think there's a lot going on there, and again, my point is not to preach a sermon on Jacob. I really think Jacob and the whole book of Genesis is really primarily teaching us about God. And in many ways, I think the Holy Spirit 
is teaching Israel, who is going to struggle with faith, the God in whom they believe. So maybe you could suggest, like as you look through Jacob, that Jacob shows us how faithful God is. Because Jacob isn't super faithful. And Jacob's life is, it's, it's got ups and downs like nobody's business. It's hard, and Joseph adds to it. And throughout all of that, God preaches to us, I am faithful. I am faithful. I am faithful. So we start with Genesis 35. Genesis 35 is, in some ways, it feels like a conversion text. When you come to Genesis 35, various circumstances that will hopefully... Um, outline a little bit as we go through this sermon, have caused Jacob to need to move because um, he's afraid for his life and his family's life. So when you come to verse 35, or excuse me, chapter 35, verse 1, God says to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Well, the reason is, is because his sons have slaughtered a whole city. And Jacob's going, oh boy. The, the inhabitants around us are going to kill us. So we need to move. So he, he's listening to God, verse 1. God says, get out of here. Verse 2, Jacob said to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I, make, I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that he had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. That's the city where they slaughtered everybody. So Jacob's hightailing it out. His sons have made a mess. He knows he's in trouble, and he's like, we have got to get out of Dodge. And so he does. He leaves. Then as you come to verse 9, God appears to Jacob. And he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give you the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So God, God honors Jacob. Jacob, remember, he's buried all the idols in the family. He said, hey, we are, we are going to as a household serve the Lord they bury the idols. They moved to the city, Bethel. He sets up an altar to worship God, and God affirms the promises like he did with Abraham. And so if we just highlight them, he promises a multitude of descendants, like a great nation will come from you. There will be kings that come from you, and you will possess the land. So we have these promises that are consistent with what Abraham has promised, Isaac was promised, now Jacob receives the promise And he's already received these promises from Isaac when he gave the blessing, and then they've been reiterated. But it's it's like this text where God enunciates really clearly, you're the one through whom these promises are given. So what I'd like to do is backtrack a little bit and show you how God is doing this. But I just think at least we can stop right here and recognize that God is still being faithful to his promises. We're, we're, We're hundreds of years since Abraham was promised He's been promised, Isaac has been promised, and God is tracking through, even though these men are not always deserving of the grace coming to them. In fact, grace doesn't ask if you deserve it. Grace is something God gives, regardless of deserts. Right? Like You don't deserve grace by definition, or it's not grace, it's an earning, Paul says. It's a wage. So it's not as though Jacob does righteousness and God's like, okay, I will repay you. It is that Jacob is devoted to the Lord, I think expresses faith, and God responds to faith with grace. So let me ask you, do you think in your life you would be helped out by trusting God more? 
I've mentioned this, and just as a, a way in which I, I think the the way we trust God leaks into all of life. I think one of the ways young men need to battle the pull of pornography is by trusting in God. Trusting that God's purity and his path for purity will bring more joy than any image or any illicit expression of desires could ever give them. That satisfaction will not be gotten in any meaningful sense outside of God's prescribed ways of blessing. So a young man can preach to his own heart, I am diminishing satisfaction and joy by chasing a false promise in sin. Well, that takes trust. Because the very thing that causes a young man to turn on his cell phone and look at garbage is the idea that he's going to get some sense of satisfaction from looking. Trust says, that's a lie. Satan has has told me something untrue. My heart wants to believe it. Do I believe what God says to be more true, more indicative of what my future holds, a more clear path forward, or do I trust what is in front of me that will give me the immediate satisfaction that it promises? I think we should be battling to forgive those who repeatedly wound us by faith. So maybe we could say something like this. I believe that my righteous response is more valuable than my comfort. And so I will forgive, even though I think it will open up the door to rewounding. Because if I forgive her, she's going to do it again. And you know what? She probably will. And so you're, you're asking the question, not as the, what is the best way to keep me from being wounded? You're asking yourself, what is the best way to honor God and to walk by faith in him? But all of that assumes God is worth trusting. Like, do you really believe that walking in purity will bring deeper satisfaction, more lasting satisfaction than giving into temptation? Do you truly believe that? And when you give into sin, you don't. You don't actually believe that. When you give in to anger to, to keep the person who sinned against you repeatedly from sinning again, you're not believing God's promises and God's word. When you act in a selfish way to draw from your spouse by being lazy or, or by pressuring them to do what you want, you're drawing from them a satisfaction that is contrary to what God calls you to do as a sacrificial spouse, which is what both men and wives are called to be, right? Like, like we're called to sacrifice for the good of our, our spouse. So if we go back and ask the question, Not only do I trust, but is that trust warranted? That's a question of God's character. Has God lied to us in this book? Has God deceived us? Has God in any way misled us? And that's a question of character. You know, there's kind of this nostalgic old man, you know, problem. I mean, when we talk about the hardship, no hardship the current generation is going through is anything like the hardship we had. So we say things like we, you know, walked to school both ways, uphill, things like that that are nonsense. Yeah, yeah, as though everyone in this generation has it easier. And no one had it as hard as we had, and no one had as much character or grit or hardworking ethic as we had. But one of the, one of the ways in which I, I don't know if it's nostalgic, I didn't live there. I'm, I'm still a really, really young man. Is, is the idea that a man's word was trustworthy. So apparently we've just only started being shysters and liars recently. Um, but there is a sense in which there are people you can trust. Right? When they shake their hand, they say, this is what is true. You know them. You know their character. You know who they are. And so you're like, I don't need a contract. I don't need anything more. If that's what you're saying is true, it's true. And you just know it to be true because you know their 
the character. God is preaching his character to Israel because the exodus is coming. The wandering is coming. The conquest of Canaan is coming where Israel is again and again be put in a place where trusting is hard. It's not difficult for me to, to, to think that Crossway needs to hear this. Because if life is difficult, you probably in some small way are in a place where you need to trust. Like you need to just look at Scripture, recognize what God says, and before you go and do, you need to ask the, the kind of soul-searching question, do I trust God? So I just suggest to you, first, as a thematic point, God is faithful to his promises. So thinking of the promise to Jacob, I, I mentioned before that these promises have been reiterated throughout the book of Genesis. In Genesis 28, God says, or actually through Isaac, God says that, that he will bless Jacob, he will make him fruitful and multiply him. Does that language sound familiar? So here's what Isaac says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessings of Abraham to you and to your offspring that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So when you look at what Isaac is calling down from God, God Almighty bless you. May he make you fruitful and multiply you May he make your offspring like a mighty nation. Then we should be asking, does God do this? Does God start working to accomplish his promises? And the Holy Spirit tells us again and again, God does this. So I'm going to clip through these verses rather quickly because I think the point is going to be really obvious. Jacob travels from that land kind of where, where Israel is today. And he travels up to where modern-day Iraq is and goes kind of back home to his old family with Uncle Laban. Now, you might not remember this about Uncle Laban. Now, Uncle Laban is Isaac's brother-in-law through his wife, Rebecca. When the servant went there, I think his name is Eleazar, and he goes and he finds a wife for Jacob. Remember, Jacob's a 40-year-old bachelor, and he never even dates. The servant goes and does the dating for him. Laban is noted as as seeing the wealth that Eliezer had. He's pictured as a greedy man. So Laban goes, or excuse me, Jacob goes to Uncle Laban. And after a little while there, it doesn't seem like it's too long, Jacob, for lack of a better word, falls in love with Rachel. He falls in love with this beautiful younger daughter. And Laban says at some point and conversationally, hey, your family, I shouldn't take advantage of you. I need to pay you. Jacob's like, well, give me your daughter, and that will be payment. And so they broker agreement for seven years. Jacob is going to work in order to marry Rachel. Seven years are up. Wedding happens. Jacob wakes up the next morning. He is not married to Rachel. He's married to the older sister, who apparently is not very attractive. So he goes to Uncle Laban and says, you did me dirty. I wanted to marry Rachel, the girl I love, and now I'm married to this girl. That's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? Can you imagine being the this girl? So Laban says, okay, fine. Give me another seven years. Well, he gets to marry her before he works out the seven. So in a week's time, he marries Rachel. And so he's got two brand new wives that he married a week apart, and he works another seven years. He finishes out that, and then they work out a financial agreement, and Jacob continues to work six more years. So he's in Uncle Laban's territory working with him for 20 years. And during that time, God blesses Jacob. Listen to what Scripture says about his children. Remember, his offspring are essential in, in terms of God's promises. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he just Consider the compassion of God. He cares about this sweet lady who's married to a man that loves her younger sister. He cares. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She ends up having six sons and a daughter. So she ends up having seven children. But verse 31, I think, is essential. The Lord opened her womb. 
And she names this child on that, on that basis. Leah conceived, bore a son. She called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Like, isn't that heartbreaking? It's such a, 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 it's one of the ways scripture reminds us again and again, this is no fairy tale. These are real heartbreaking, heartbreaking moments with real people who are struggling to do right. 29, excuse me, chapter 30, verse 17. God listened to Leah. She's still struggling. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Isaacar. Going back to verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. Do you know why? Rachel's like, give me a son. You know what Jacob's response is? Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of, your womb, of the womb? In other words, Jacob's point is, who gives children? God does, and God has given Leah the babies. Don't, don't make me responsible for something I can't fix. I cannot fix your barrenness. This is a God thing. Chapter uh, 30, verse 20, Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Verse 22, then God remembered and God listened to her and opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And of course the Lord does, Benjamin. So when you look at the, the heritage, the offspring, we won't go into chapter 38 um, and read it in detail, but in chapter 38, the line of Judah is in trouble. Judah's first son is wicked, so God strikes him dead. Judah's second son disobeys the Lord, and God strikes him dead. Jacob's line is down to a, a very slim margin of extinction. In chapter 38, which is a little bit gritty, is one of those places where God is showing us, even despite wickedness, which God purges out of Judah's line, God saves the line, and Judah has grandchildren that end up inheriting the name from Judah, and the descent of Judah is rescued. God shows us through Genesis that his promises to produce offspring are proven trustworthy. God is faithful. Barren women, wicked sons, jeopardy of extinction. You come down to Genesis 47, and, and Dempster in his book on the Old Testament um, points this out. I don't think it's something I would have ever caught on my, caught on my own. But when, when Jacob moves down to Egypt, and they cite all the descendants of Jacob, and all of the family and their marriages and all that stuff, they all moved down as a troop into, into Egypt. It's, um, if you guys are looking for the reference, it's 4727. It lists all the people. They settled in Egypt in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it, and, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. But if you were to keep reading, you'll see in chapter 46, he brings down and his whole family together 70 people. Now, that number is significant in light of the fact that when all of the nations are listed in Genesis 10, do you know how many nations are listed? Seventy. And Dempster makes the point that God is showing us that he is turning this into a, a displacement of the nations, that he is raising from Abraham's people a nation of nations, like a, a group of people that is many in number, as, as though in some ways... It's an equivalent of the many nations. I think it's probably legitimate. It's just one of those things. You'd have to go through and count to know there were 70 in Genesis 10. And then you'd have to see that, that the Holy Spirit is showing us that Israel is multiplying and prospering because God said to Abraham, they're going to have descendants that, like, that are like the sand by the seas. Can you count the stars in the sky and name them? Because your descendants are going to be like them. By the end of Genesis, we've gone from one barren couple to a family that's fruitful and multiplying in the land of Egypt. God keeps his promises because God is faithful. God, God is also faithful to bless. As, as we're continuing kind of trekking through, you're somewhere around chapter 30, I hope, with your fingers. Um, if you were to, to go back to 27, 29, and go back even further to... to um, 
well, I think it's chapter 12 and maybe chapter 14, where God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Um, this is repeated to Jacob in 27, 29. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. So, so not only is Jacob and, and his descendants, not only are they blessed by name, those who are in association with them also receive blessing if they're inclined to care for Jacob. When they don't like Jacob, when they treat Jacob badly, what are they then? They're going to be cursed. God, again, is faithful. If you go to chapter 30, remember Uncle Laban, greedy Laban? Laban said to him in chapter 30, verse 27, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And again, in verse 30, Jacob responds, You had little before I came to you, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. So why is Uncle Laban blessed? Because Jacob. Laban gets wealthy because Jacob is his lucky charm. And greedy Uncle Laban loves Jacob. Until Jacob says, hey, um, so where's my wages? And all of a sudden, the relationship turns sour. Look with me in chapter 31. By the way, I mean, this is where Genesis is actually a really fun book to read in many ways. So Jacob and Laban have decided that here's how they're going to divide the spoils. Jacob is going to get all the goats that are spotted or striped. Laban is going to get all the solid colored ones. Okay, so you know what Uncle Laban does? Uncle Laban looks at his flock and he goes, Hey, um, all you, you goat herders, get all the spotted and striped goats out. And he goes and secretly removes all of the goats that would reproduce spotted and striped goats from his herd. So after he and Jacob make this deal, it's like, okay, you get all the ugly ones, and Laban will get all the good-looking ones. Then he goes through and he gets rid of all the ugly-looking male goats because he doesn't want any for Jacob. So Jacob also is not super um, noble. When, when the goats are breeding, he puts in front of them um, sticks and stripes, and apparently it helps them reproduce spotted and striped goats. So apparently Laban and Jacob are cut from the same cloth. Verse 1 of chapter 31, though. Look at how God intervenes. Jacob heard the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. Verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as he had before. Skip down to verse 6. He goes after um, this claim by Laban, and it says, You know that I served your father with all my strength. He's speaking to his wives. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. In fact, if you were to look in 31 verse 42, he says that Laban would have sent him away with nothing if he could have. Verse 9, thus God has taken away the livestock from your father and given it to me. Is God keeping his promises? Laban was blessed when Laban and Jacob got along. When Laban started to get more greedy and turned away from Jacob and started despising Jacob, God took all of Laban's goats and turned them into striped and spotted goats and gave them to Jacob. Verse 9, he's speaking to Leah and Rachel. Thus God has taken away the livestock from your father, given them to me. Verse 11, the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Verse 12, and he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with a flock are striped and spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. God is blessing Laban for Jacob's sake and then cursing Laban for Jacob's sake. God is keeping his promises. Again, these are the types of things, when I read through the Bible, and I'm trying to, you know, um, read through larger sections, sometimes I can miss these details. And so my, my hope is that by walking you through and kind of highlighting, kind of like a, um, 
a highlight reel after a good football game. You're seeing what God is doing and how God is moving his people and keeping his promises. But he does this again with Joseph. I think specifically you see this mentioned several times. Genesis 39.5. From that time, um, Potiphar, the, the, the household that he was serving in, made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed this Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. You remember when he came to Potiphar's house and he comes in as a servant? He is just a young boy. I mean, the Bible says he's 17 in the text right before he gets sold into slavery. So we're talking about, you know, this kid's barely graduated high school. And when he comes into that household, God starts blessing and blessing and blessing. And all of a sudden, he is the vice president of this huge estate. Like, he's running everything. In fact, when Potiphar sends him to jail, he says, I gave you run over everything and management over everything, and I withheld nothing from you except my wife. How many of you would put an 18-year-old kid in charge of everything you own and do so with full confidence that they would do well with it? God blesses him for Joseph's sake. If you go down to verse 22 and 23, the keeper of the prison where Joseph was put because the wife lied about him, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all, that the, all the prisoners that were in prison. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, I think Joseph is a righteous character. And unlike his father, who has kind of a checkered character of both good and bad, Joseph's character seems relatively sterling. Maybe perhaps a little bit foolish when he's 17 and he tells his brothers, you're all going to like bow down before me. But at this point in life and how he lives in Potiphar's house as a household slave, how he responds when he gets sent to prison for a lie by Potiphar's wife, and then how even in prison he is trustworthy and God blesses him. And God uses that. I mean, you think about Joseph's life. And it leads us to our next point, that God is not only faithful to bless, God is faithful to protect. God is faithful to protect. Right, so as you're, as you're tracing like the specific promises, right, God is faithful to his promises. He gives offspring, he gives blessing, and he gives protection. So with Joseph, you think how God moved him. His brothers want to murder him. Instead of murdering him, he gets sold to a band of, of travelers going by who take him to Egypt. He gets sold into this household where he serves and he gets raised to this elevated status. And the lady of the house tries to seduce him. She, re she is rejected by Joseph. And, you know, what is he saying? Uh, there is no fury like a woman spurned or scorned. And so she sends him to jail by lying about Joseph. And apparently immorality is pretty common in Egypt. So the biggest scandal was that this got raised up to Potiphar's um, notice, so he had to deal with it. But apparently immorality was kind of the common thing just no one ever talked about in private, like in, in society, but everyone knew it was happening. So she lies about Joseph. Joseph gets sent to prison because God has an appointment he needs to keep. Because while he's in prison, he meets with two individuals, the baker for the king and the cupbearer. The cupbearer was usually a close associate of the king. A lot of times, kind of the poison tester. He'd eat with the king. If he died, the king wouldn't eat because it's probably not good to eat. So somehow, those two got in a kerfuffle. And so they both get sent to prison. Guess who's in prison now? Joseph, because God sent him there for this appointment. He meets with those two. They have an unsettling dream sent by whom do you think? Right? This is the Lord's doing. And so they, they share their dream with the guy who apparently is in charge, Joseph, this young kid. And, I mean, he's in his 20s at this point. So probably, I mean, if we're, if we're doing timelines tightly, maybe 27-ish, give or take a year. He's in prison. He interprets the dreams. The, the dreams come true. The baker gets his head cut off. The cupbearer goes back and resumes serving alongside the king, Pharaoh, and promptly forgets all about Joseph, which is really in Joseph's benefit because he is like, he's on layaway. 
right? He's waiting for a time when, when Pharaoh actually needs to speak to him. Rather than just getting released and sent on his way, he's being held there because when Pharaoh has a dream and he's unsettled by it, the cupbearer's like, oh, you know, I know a dream guy. You want my dream guy? Right? And he shares with him this information about Joseph. And the king's like, well, I need to talk to a dream guy, so send him here. So Joseph goes in and is like, hey, I'm actually not a dream guy. I have a God who knows dreams. He's really careful not to take credit for it. And so he shares with Pharaoh what's going to happen. And you might recall the story. There are going to be seven years of overwhelming abundance in that whole region, followed by seven years of desperate famine. I mean, it's so desperate, by year two, Joseph's brothers have already gone two times to Israel to beg for food. So when it's so bad that in year one, you, you've eaten through everything and there's no food to survive and you've got to go back to Egypt, and by year two, you're already in your second trip, that whole region, Egypt, all of Palestine, all of it was just wrecked in a famine. Well, Joseph tells Pharaoh it's going to be seven years of incredible harvest followed by seven years of incredible famine. Pharaoh's like, well, it sounds like you know what you're talking about, so I put you in charge of everything. Right? He gets, he is number two in the whole nation of Egypt. Pharaoh's the only one above him. He has charge over Pharaoh's household. He's got charge over Pharaoh's nation. By the end of the famine, Pharaoh owns every piece of land in Egypt except for the temple and the holy grounds because of Joseph's managerial skill. He owns the people because they were so impoverished. They had no money. They had no cattle. They had no equity in land. And they come and say, we're going to starve to death. What do we do? And Joseph says, well, we can buy you. So from that point forward, Pharaoh owns 20% of their product because of Joseph's managerial skill. But I would suggest to you, God blessed Joseph. Now, this isn't, Joseph is this incredible entrepreneur. This is God blesses. God gave favor. God helped. God moved. God's providence gave protection. So I just want you to think through the storyline. I've, I've skipped some pieces here and there, but I've tried to give you a storyline of Genesis. And let me just explain to you then the protection. Jacob left to go to greedy Uncle Laban because Esau wanted to murder him. Right? Like, he is overheard talking about killing his brother, and his mom comes to him and says, you need to go. I mean, these are not young men. They are over 40 at the point at which Jacob leaves. So again, you have another 40-year-old single man going and finding a wife. He leaves and goes up to Uncle Laban. And then after 20 years, he's coming back, and he's afraid. So Genesis 32, verses 9 through 12, Jacob said, O God of my father, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who saved me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good, is what the Lord said. I am not worthy of the least of all of these deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you've shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the, mother, um, and the mothers with children who are with me. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for their multitude. So let me just like pull back and show what Jacob does. Jacob's heading back to Esau. Esau's a warrior hunter dude. Right? Like Jacob's a goat herder. Esau's a killer. He's heading back. He's looking at going back and greeting his brother. And he goes, this is trouble. Then he prays to God and he says, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, God who's kept promises and steadfast love, I'm about to be my angry brother. Please rescue me. By the way, your promises are really important to keep. Please, amen. <laughs> like, what is he doing? He's citing the promises of God. 
He's like, God who kept promises to Abraham, God who kept promises to Isaac, God who has given me love that I don't deserve, please save me and keep your promises because you're a promise keeper. That's how he prays. And what does God do? Esau, who wanted to murder him, comes up and hugs him and kisses him and welcomes him home. And Jacob's like, here's all the stuff. Please don't be angry. And Esau's like, I don't need anything. I'm good. Glad you're home, brother. Jacob's like, please take it. And he takes it. Who did that? Who protected Jacob from a violent guy? Was it not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Chapter 35, I, I already read portions of this text. This is where Jacob's two oldest sons, I'm sorry, not two oldest, his second, uh, second and thirdborn sons, I think it's Levi and Simeon, their sister was um, taken advantage of by the city of Shechem, actually by the guy named Shechem. And so they concoct a scheme. They slaughter the whole city of Shechem. And Abraham, or excuse me, Jacob says, oh boy, this, this region is going to be a hornet's nest kicked over. They're going to want to kill us. We need to get out of here. And so he prays to God. And God says to Jacob, get up and leave. Look with me in 35.5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were all around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God is working in the hearts of people who do not know about him and do not believe in him to make them afraid of a people who, who probably deserve justice. And rather than pursue Jacob's sons and slaughter them, which would have been kind of the just retribution, because of a fear they don't understand, they just let them go. This is God saving Jacob and his family. This is God protecting them, even when they've done wickedly. So wickedly that those two sons are removed from the line of, of promise. Right? They, we'll get there as we wrap up this morning. They're excluded. That's why Judah, who's actually the, the fourth-born son, inherits that blessing of kingship ultimately fulfilled by King David, or fulfilled by King David, and ultimately by Christ. Come down a little bit further to chapter 45. And I want to conclude with this and then one more text. I know we've done a lot of kind of skipping through, and I've tried to keep it relatively in order in the book, but when you come to chapter 45, this is where the famine has gotten severe, and Joseph finally reveals himself. He's, a, he's not quite, but probably around 40 years old at this point. So he's been in Egypt. Um, he has been governing for about nine years. So yeah, that first seven of, of bounty and we're the second year of famine. So he's, he's started that when he's 30 years old. That's where I'm getting that. He's probably 39, 40, somewhere in that window. And he says to his brothers these words. Look with me in verse 5. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Just pause. Who sold him into Egypt? His brothers. Okay, keep that in mind. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to do what? So God is keeping his promises. The family in famine may have died. What is God doing? Yeah, we're, we're talking about 25 years before he sent Joseph on a rescue mission that wouldn't actually provide rescue for decades. And he says, hey, you sold me. God sent me. Right? Like, do you see the, like, you guys are bums. Like, you sold me for money. But God was the one sending me on a rescue mission. God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's still five years left in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Man, what grace. I mean, like, what mercy from Joseph. God sent me 
I had a bum rap the whole way for the first, like, what, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years? I was a slave? I was imprisoned wrongly? Because you guys are liars and bums. And God did this to preserve for you an offspring. Survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over, the, over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down, do not tarry. Man, that's, he is preaching God's providence. People do bad things, hurt us deeply. Do you know that God is in charge? You did evil, God intended good. That's what he'll say later in chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, right? You meant evil against me. God intended good. And what gives him that confidence? What is, with what, like, confidence would he preach to his brothers? You did this, but God was doing something different. Was this fact he knew what God was doing because of the promises? We are a promised offspring. We are going to be like a nation. God is protecting us. God has guided his hand, guided us with his hand upon us. He has opened a way for us. He looks at his life and he sees God moving him. It's not as though he looks at his brothers and says, you meant it for good, but you're bad at it. He said, you're bad and you meant it for bad, but God did good things through it. So I want to suggest to you, if God is faithful, and he is, then a lot of the circumstances in life that you are really struggling with are actually divine grace you just don't understand yet. Like, God is doing you good if you are his child. He says things like, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or, since he has given us his son, who could possibly be against us? God has promised us good. And so when providence delivers us an unpleasant hand of suffering, of sorrows, of challenges, isn't God still good? Has his character changed? Are you worried his promises will fall through? So why then do we act faithlessly? I think one of the things that probably helped Joseph was confidence that even in the small things, God was at work. Like I, I'm sure that in Potiphar's house, as he sees God bless, that he was able to understand God was doing it. That God's hand was on him. That God was blessing him. I want to take you to Genesis 49, just so that we tee up the book of Exodus well. In Genesis 49, I mean, just, it, it's, it's Jacob's life ending. I think Jacob lives to be 147. If you're doing your genealogies right, I just find it fascinating to figure out, like, what and how old. I don't know if you've caught that. I'm trying to, like, piece these things together. It looks to me as though Joseph was born. He's called the son of his old age, where Jacob is probably in his late 80s, maybe early 90s, like really early 90s, when Joseph was born. So, that, I mean, kind of reminds you, reminiscent at least of Abraham in his old age. And so Joseph is here, and all the brothers are here, and, and Jacob is explaining and conferring on them the blessings. Now, Reuben has been immoral, and so he's excluded from the promise in terms of the, that promised offspring coming. We already mentioned Simeon, and, and he was excluded, Levi as well, um, because of their slaughter of the city of Shechem. And then we come to, to verse 8, Judah. I just want to point out a few things here. 
Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's a prophecy. That's a blessing conferred about what's coming down in Judah's line. Judah's offspring will be honored, bowed down to, submitted to by his brothers, which would indicate that Judah's descendant is going to be a leader over the people of Israel. More than that, it indicates that he is going to have a stranglehold on his enemies. He will subdue his enemies, verse 8. And finally, verse 10, a scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In fact, there will be a Judahite on the throne forever. His name will be Jesus. Until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the nations, the peoples. One day, a son of Judah will reign as king over this earth. That was established in Genesis. Shadowy promise in Genesis 3, an offspring's coming, and he's going to crush the serpent's offspring. And we track that down, and we come down through the people of Israel, and we see how like it navigates. Just consider the dangers that, that could have stopped that line. Judah's children are wicked, and so most of them are killed, and the line almost dies out in chapter 38. And God resurrects the lion through a righteous daughter-in-law. Laban would have impoverished and enslaved Jacob, but God rescues both wealth and family from Laban's greedy fingers. Esau, a violent man, could have killed Jacob, but God protected him. The cities in Canaan around Shechem should have risen up in just retribution and crushed those boys. But God put fear, and so they were protected. A famine 20-some years in advance is avoided in terms of the destruction it could have brought on the whole family line because God sent Joseph as a messenger of grace through hardship, imprisonment, lies, and abandonment, and ultimately through the prophetic dreams. He's raised to a place of rescuer because God protects his people. Isaac was rescued from barrenness with his wife, Rebecca. God gave children to Leah. God gave children to their handmaids. God gave children to Rachel. God gave children. And God protects. And God blesses. And God blesses those who bless his people. God curses those who curse his people. God was actively working to bring about Israel's prosperity. And he sends Israel down to Egypt that, like a national incubator, they could grow and prosper into a nation. And they do. So that when Exodus starts, we scan and we don't have 70 people. We have multitudes. We have a powerful nation that's ready to rise up and honor God. We have God proving himself faithful faithful to remove wickedness, faithful to remove threats of famine, faithful to protect from greedy uncles, faithful to keep barrenness from making the lions extinct. We have a God who is faithful. And so the challenge to us is not that we read Genesis and we're like, wow, God was faithful. If you use past tense, you got it wrong. God is faithful. God is faithful. This was intended to, to preach to all of Israel throughout its history. God is faithful. God is a redeeming God who's going to rescue his people. He will keep his promises because he is faithful. The gospel in its seed form that is about to sprout and bring forth the line of Jesse into the full fruitfulness that Christ is going to bring, that's coming because God is faithful. God is faithful. 
That didn't stop when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. I have no massive scriptural promises that Mark will inherit tons of land or have offspring like the sands of the sea. We have plenty. I, I don't have those types of promises, but I know this, that God who is faithful has promised eternal life to all who turn to Christ and believe in him. God is faithful. Do you believe in him? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to save people from the penalty of sin, who was raised again that he might grant resurrected life to all who trust in him? God is faithful. He will save forever all those who trust in Jesus. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? That challenge doesn't just stop there. Do you trust him enough to offer forgiveness to the repeat offender? Do you trust him enough to discipline your children and challenge them to believe and trust in God too? And the postmodern fraud is that you have no right to tell your children what to believe. But if God is true, and he is, it is child endangerment to not tell them of Christ and call them to believe. Do you have enough faith that your giving and your spending are done in such a way that God is honored with your finances? Do you have faith so that you call your children to join you in prayer to the Savior? Do you have enough faith that God is trustworthy and true so that you battle against those dangers in our world like pornography, like greed, so that you don't look like Laban or like Reuben who gave in to those fleshly impulses and one is excluded from the promises and one is a picture of the enemies of God's people. Do you have faith that God is trustworthy, he is faithful? Trust in the God of Scripture. My guess is if you're going through a hard time that you should start with this thought. I believe everything God's word says is true. So what do I need to believe about this and about myself so that I can walk in a way that pleases God who is faithful? Let's pray that God gives us that type of faith. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the accurate recording of history that gives us insight to your doings, to people's thoughts and intentions so that we can know with confidence that in people's hearts, in their motivations, in their actions, even in weather patterns, you are providentially guiding all of human history to accomplish your purposes so that your promises to us will be true. You have promised us eternal life through Jesus Christ. You have promised us good. You have promised us to care for us. You have promised to listen to our prayers. You have promised us satisfaction when we walk with Christ. Lord, these things are true, but our hearts struggle to hold on to them. When life is difficult, when it's painful, when we are struggling with pronounced forms of temptation, our hearts tend to doubt. Father, for the Christian in here, would you cause us to see with clear eyes how steadfast and true you are, and we might rely upon you for everything. Lord, if, if there are trials that are pressing upon people in this room, I ask that you give them a steadfast faith that you are good and you are true. For those who are not saved from sin or do not know how to be saved, Lord, I ask that you would help them to understand that trusting in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to provide for them a rescue from sin's penalty and its enslavement is all that they need to do. They need to respond by casting themselves upon your mercy and trusting in you to rescue them because you are the one who does all the work. We do none. We merely trust you to do the saving. So, Lord, I pray that you would give saving faith to those in this room who may not have it. Lord, in all these things, we ask that you might be honored and glorified. 
One of the most remarkable attributes you have is faithfulness. Lord, give our church a steadfast confidence that you are true. You are faithful. You keep your word. You never break promises. You are not deceitful in any way. You do not act in lies or dishonesty, nor do you say them. Lord, help us to trust you because your words are more true than this earth is. This earth will melt away and die before you will break your word. So, Lord, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.